As we mentioned last week and yesterday, we've changed the topic around a bit. This is a multimedia presentation with text, with song, with uh, what else? Music? No, uh, mo uh, movie clips. Joel Cooperberg will be dancing in the back, so I don't know what we call that. Interpretive dance back there. Um, so only a few programs remain. Of course, we have our closing program Sunday night which will recognize Sarah Cornell and anybody else who's attended eight, all 18 lectures. Wow. Has anybody attended close to 18 lectures? How about 10? <laughs> 10 programs? Okay, you're in the running then. You know I like to give out prizes. There's some nice prizes for our... By the way, you know, our CSB hat challenge, all of a sudden I'm trying to do my work. I'm getting picture, 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 picture. I, I don't know where you guys were, but people were holding back. I got like, there's someone running... Do you know Barry and Joanne Hennick? Well, they're running around Africa, so now I'm getting Table Mountain, hanging out with a cheetah. They have a Zulu tribe wearing the CSP hat. They've... I've got Alaska, all over Alaska. So, Susan Glass, you go traveling every year. I got nothing from you this year. Last year, you were in the Atlas Mountains. Because next year, you have, if we do another year, I would schedule a trip, not when our scholars here, and go get some pictures. Okay. So, that, that's one thing that's going on. The other thing is, uh, yeah, we're getting close to 100 people signed up for being interested in our Israel trip. We're not going to take 100 people to Israel, and I'm sure not 100 will sign up, but I'm very encouraged that we have that many people that are excited about going to Israel with CSP, and it will be a memorable trip, but it is good. It's in, in October 2020, which means you've got to start training now. Those of you who've come on a trip means you've got to stop, you, you do sleep deprivation exercises, lots of walking and hiking, and uh, you'll be ready. And eating very rich Israeli food. That would, that would help as well. Okay, so uh, quick announcements. Temple uh, Bat Yam tomorrow night. If you want to go to dinner, I don't know if it's too late for them to sign up. You can call. 60 people are signed up just for dinner tomorrow night at Temple Bat Yam. I believe Blueberry Hill is catering. And you can sign up. There's a phone number or an email. Otherwise, the presentation is 7.30 p.m., no charge. Anti-Israelism, anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism at Beth Jacob Congregation of Irvine on Saturday at 11.30. Uh, and then Sunday is our closing program. Saturday Sorry, Saturday night. American Jews' power in Israel in the contemporary era, which is not a, it's not a very action-packed presentation, right? That's the one you gave in Long Beach, and then they had the pitchforks out, and they were chasing you around the room? Right. No, no, it wasn't like that. He's a, he doesn't take sides. He presents the material. Um, so that's up, up at Temple Beth Tikva, presentation 5.30 p.m. And then um, our closing event in Irvine, 7 p.m. reception, 7.30 p.m. is the program. We should have some nice food. We'll see. Um, yes, you have questions already? The synagogue had a wonderful lecture from Dr. Dollinger, and it was very well attended. Yes. That's what I heard. That's what I heard. We were there. I'm sure you were there, because you've gone to every lecture, even the, even the repeat ones, but it's okay. Um, let's see. We are honoring, as you know, David Ofra Wellner. David's not here tonight, but um, it's something that we do want to mention. We, uh, we, do, we, we don't do, you know, I know that Jewish institutions honor people, and that means you have to call your friends and raise money and buy a book and all that. We don't do that. What do, I had a name for it. What would you say call that? Yeah, I'll figure it out. We do want to honor, we just want to honor people who are longtime supporters of CSP, who care about Jewish education, and so I do want to mention their names again. But I do want to mention, particularly tonight, uh, I want to think about Lee Brockett, who passed away. His funeral was yesterday. A lot of people are at Shiva tonight with Marion. Marion and Lee have been 
longtime patrons of CSP. If you come to our adult retreats, they've been in all of them. And um, if you come to our CSP camping, this does not look like the CSP camping group out here, but people who have come to our camping trips um, have known how special it was to have Lee with us. He was a master camper. He will be missed, and I just wanted to mention that tonight. The other thing I wanted to mention is uh, we have our friend Mark Michael Epstein coming to town in March. I believe March 8th, we're doing a special program on the art inside the old Polish synagogues that no longer exist. And uh, that's a program we're doing in particular because of our trip coming up to Poland. But everyone will be invited, so you'll get the invitation. But we also are doing a special program with Mark on Sunday, March 10th. Some of you already did this type of program, but we're taking a bus up to the Getty Villa, and Mark will take us on a tour of the art and the sculpture in the Getty Villa with an eye to how it connects to our Jewish Talmudic tradition. And uh, he did, does a great job of connecting the images that you see with sources that you may be familiar with. So the reason I'm telling you that is I'm hoping to get an email out about that um, tomorrow before Shabbat. There's very limited space because the Getty Villa will not allow more than 20 people in a gallery at a time. And the bus that I chartered yesterday won't take more than 45 people. But if you're interested in going with Mark to the Getty Villa and you're a CSP patron, there's no cost. You just have to register before other people register and take those seats. If you're a CBI member or a CSP member, there's a charge of $50, which includes the whole trip, the bus, and Mark. But again, it's going to be very limited space. So you now have the information. If you want to sign up, please sign up before it sells out, and I hope you will join us. Um, the other program I wanted to mention was February 13th. We're flying Karen Franklin in from New York, where she is considered one of the um, great genealogists of our time. We're bringing her in to talk about how you do your own genealogy research, and uh, she's going to use examples of people who are coming on our trip, and she's also going to have some time working with people to help find some of the genealogy information if they'd like her help. So you've got emails about that. We have close to 40 people signed up for that. And we have only limited slots if you want to meet with her for a private session. If there's a particular part of history you want to know about from your family, she can find it. Do you remember when we had Jeffrey Gurak here this summer? He mentioned he did some, he needed to do some genealogy research about the Jews who moved up to Harlem. And he spoke to this woman who found out all the information. That was her. That's Karen Franklin. That's how we got her. So um, What's, I'll, I'll tell you one little tease about our scholar for next year, since Ahuva Ho is here, and that one topic we'll be exploring is the Yemenite community in Israel and its impact, how it got to Israel, its impact, and the challenges it faced in, in, um, in getting into and absorbed into the uh, community in Israel. That's a little tease. I will tell you the overall theme and a lot more information at our closing program. So with that, what are we calling this program? American Jewish History, a primary source leader. Oh, that's a good place to find it. Please join me in welcome back, Professor Mark Dollinger, American Jewish History, a primary source reader. Okay, it took me 10 years to get my first book contract. That's a hard average to maintain throughout your career. But uh, good news was I, uh, I uh, got a phone call from my editor asking me to contribute a chapter to a new book they were doing on California Jews. I spent 30 minutes telling her why I didn't believe in local history from a, dare I say it, filiopietistic historiographic point of view, which was my critique. 
And at the end of 30 minutes, she offered me a contract to co-edit the book, for those of you who have the California Jews book. And then one day I was at the gym and I did the weight workout thing and then I went out for a jog and it was just a 20-minute jog and I had this idea for a book. So I called up my editor and I got a contract like right off the bat. So I'm thinking, this is pretty good to go from 10 years to 30 minutes to 20 minutes, <laughs> except the whole thing inverted. You see, because the first idea for the book was a, a, a document book in American Jewish history with tutorials for the students. So we put in selections of documents, we put tutorials all over it, it's exactly what our contract said, and the eight people they sent it out to didn't like the idea at all. They didn't want tutorials. So I learned a hard, fast lesson, which is when you're writing a monograph just for you and your editor, you can do whatever you want. But if you're writing a book you want other professors to buy, you should check in with them first. So then we ended up making this very big book of documents, and we sent it in. And then the, um, the leader of our field, Jonathan Sarna at Brandeis University, he says, it's a great book, but it's not great enough. You need to have it one-third longer. And then the editor says, impossible in the page limitations. And then Jonathan said, well, if you do this, that, and the other, and he, because he knows it. And sure enough, we did the third version of the book to make it a little bit even bigger. So tonight we have a multimedia extravaganza, American Jewish history, a primary source reader, Erev Tov, good evening, great to see you all. And, uh, and here's how it goes with the books, okay? I will tell you that... Uh, as I mentioned before, I packed my trunk with books when I drove down here, and then they all sold out. So then I had Marcy and Shana haul back suitcases full of books, and, and this book is already pre-sold out. Just even and when I walked here in the first minutes, I do have more at home. So if you're interested in the book, um, then I will give you an envelope, and you'll write your name on it, and we'll stick the book in it when I get back on Monday night, and on Tuesday, it'll be in the mail to you. So, um, so that's what it looks like, and there, here's your book. Just make sure you get it. Okay. Um, everyone should have a document packet in their hand. If you don't, there should be more out there. Okay, Ari has some document packets, too. Great. Um, okay, so let's go to our historical uh, question. Oh, but wait. It's the CSP Hat Challenge. Oh, fantastic. That, that, this is how well-coordinated we are. And here's our second one. And our third one. Very nice. All right, our historical question. What are primary source documents? And how do they help us understand American Jewish history? Just so you know, tonight is fun. It's only fun through historical documents. I don't know that there's anything political happening tonight in anything. There's no thesis for tonight. I mean, I'm going to make one up because I do it every time. All right, so the thesis tonight is that primary sources are historical documents that offer important perspectives and insights into the past. Scholars employ these artifacts to help them understand and explain historical events, as well as their meanings and purpose. In American Jewish history, uh, we um, critique primary sources to determine, for example, whether the experience of Jews in the country proved exceptional. And since the whole month is American Jewish history and we've talked about exceptionalism, um, I'll sort of uh, put that, put that in, in there. Uh, really, what I've done is pulled the highlights of the book for us to talk about. Some of them we've dealt with in other lectures, so you get to see the actual document. And then, I, because a book is a book in two dimensions, for fun, I put in music and videos. 
which are not in the book. You just get them as a bonus for being here tonight. Uh, so that, that should be fun. Uh, and then on my announcements, the, uh, we're talking about politics and historiography and uh, the intersection of scholarship and the fact that I'm not here to be an activist for any perspective. I'm trying to complicate your narratives and deepen learning. All that said, I will just tell you, because I tend to write about Jews and liberalism and Jews in the left, whenever I write something, they always send it to the Jewish Republicans to critique because they figured they're going to be my toughest critic, and that way they'll get the hardest sense of, of it. So the very first uh, review just came out for the Black Power book, which you all should have received, um, from the leading uh, Jewish um, conservative um, ideologue. And uh, I'm happy to say it's a complimentary um, review. In fact, it's so complimentary that, uh, that in the last sentence, he had to uh, put at least one sentence of what I argued that I actually didn't argue because it just makes him feel better about what I didn't argue. So that was really nice. Dollinger's Jewish leaders, far from championing black power, could accept it only to the point at which it didn't impinge on fundamental Jewish values and interests. So I, that's a nice closing. It, it's highly inaccurate, but I'm going to take it as a compliment that that's all he could come up with to criticize the book. So, all right, that's great. Um, uh, Edward Shapiro. He was at uh, Seton Hall. He's now retired, I believe. So, uh, okay. Here's the challenge um, we have with undergraduates. I, first of all, uh, and especially for any history majors, anyone want to define a primary source document? That's an official phrase, yeah. An original document written by the person who was there. Excellent. A primary source comes from the historical period you are studying. So the job of the academic historian is to go into the archives, for whatever your subject is, and to look through the historical material about whatever your book is going to be. And that's called a primary source. Primary meaning original. So certainly at the graduate level in history, PhD programs and master's programs, it's, they're thoroughly immersed in primary source material. And for the undergrad history majors, we at least want one class on historical methods or theory where we introduce them to the notion of the primary source document. Uh, yeah. March 26, 1918 issue of the New Yorker because in there is a whole, it's a history of the Jews. Yeah, so I haven't seen that one in particular, but I'm thrilled about it. Oh, have I read the March 26, 1918 um, issue of New Yorker? Um, that's my birthday. So thank you for bringing up March 26. I'll never forget the date, the, the year maybe, but, uh, but that's great. Oh, happy, well, happy birthday to us. That's great. So what we want to do with the undergrad, so first I'll give you, I'll give you my sob story, and, and then we'll get to the newspaper up here. The problem we have with undergraduates and primary sources is they can't capture them, understand them, process them. First, they have to look at it. Then they have to read it. Now, this is easy because it's a newspaper, but if you're a medievalist and you're looking at a 15th century document translated from the Latin, you know, just, just the act of being able to read and comprehend it at the most superficial level is hard. Then you have to know how that document fit into the larger historical arc of the period. 
then you have to know how to interpret the, that document within the larger history. And then you have to know what that interpretation will do to a thesis. There's four intellectual tasks to go from looking at the document. And frankly, they just students just stare at you. And you're up there doing a song and dance with a particular document. So what we did in our original draft, which you will not read because it only exists on my computer now, is we said, okay, this is a newspaper. Uh, a newspaper is a public document because we talked to them about public documents versus private documents. And then they're supposed to come up with the good news and the bad news for each kind. So let's, let's just imagine you're doing you know, a, some sort of historical research and there's the New York Times. What's a good thing that a New York Times front page can give you as, as a researcher? An end of the war. So it's going to give you the information, right? So number one, it communicates the basic narrative. Yeah. It's going to give you the stamp of that particular day, which is going to be very honest to that moment because you know it was created in that moment. It's going to prioritize what's going on in society at the time. The headline's obviously going to be the most important thing. And then you see where things appear in a newspaper give you an idea of either what's important or at least what's important to there you go. So it's going to prioritize, and I'll repeat it for the podcast, it's going to prioritize the importance, or at least the importance to the editors who are the ones who decide what the headline will be, how large the headline will be. And uh, by the way, Deborah Lipstadt's initial book was called Beyond Belief, and this is exactly what she did. She looked at where Holocaust stories in World War II were in various newspapers to determine how it is over time and over newspapers. They never made it to the front page, really. Yeah. In the case of like the New York Times, there's a certain standard of journalism that you can hopefully trust the information to be accurate and timely as opposed to sources that we have. So the idea is that big name journalistic enterprises would have some integrity to what they're saying. So there'd be a higher level of trust. And of course, everyone has their opinions on everything. I just need to keep moving because we have 27 examples to go. Um, what would be bad about a newspaper how, how might a student need to be more critical when reading the newspaper? Well, first, I think you've already said because the editors are going to pick what goes where. It's also a very, um, it's a summary. It's not usually typically very researched, and um, it's, not, it's not giving you all the facts because there's just no room for it. Journalists are on so journalists are on deadline. They can't give you all the facts. They can't give you the background. And of course, they're going to give you. And, and by the way, some newspapers um, want to be journalistic in every sense. Other journalists, other newspapers, the socialist or communist newspapers in in the Jewish world were, were unapologetic about wanting to advance a political agenda with their news stories. So they would have to be able to read in, into that as well. There's one, yeah. The immediacy causes a lack of. Okay, so the immediacy of them uh, um, makes it challenging for context analysis. I'm not going to hand out pencils to everyone now, but everyone who talked, just come grab one because that's right. So, so excellent. And that's what we put in a short section ahead of the first newspaper clipping. So they could read that and see that. Um, speeches. And so this is, we just have an image of, of, of a speech being made. Um, I think that's Stephen S. Wise. And speeches um, are going to have positives and negatives. Positives because they're, they're going to, give you what they think. It's a public notion. So the negative is, well, they thought about it and they thought about what they wanted to say and how they wanted to say it. And if they're trying to advance a particular agenda in the speech, then they will make sure that the speech does that. And there's always backstories to speech writing. And if you're a scholar you know, or a journalist, you'd like to know the backstory in order to see it. Um, this is a photograph. Photographs are great primary sources, even though there's no words on them. 
they say a picture can tell a thousand words sort of thing. Um, this was not the exact picture I got as a, as a freshman at Berkeley um, in my first, US, my first US history survey class, um, but it was a similar picture of, of the Lower East Side scene and, uh, and, the, and the TA, he was still in graduate school, Ron Robin, said to us, you know, look at the picture, what can you learn or tell from the picture? And we're, by the way, Ron Robin, who was my TA in US history, is now the president of the University of Haifa. So uh, I'm excited. I take no credit, but I did study with them, so that's good. So if you ever want a connection to Haifa when you're in Israel, let me know. I'll make an introduction. Well, after all this 18-year-old stared at this thing, he said two things. Number one, look at all the people. And, and it's, sun, it's, the day, it's daytime. Why are people out in the street in the daytime? And that went to labor and work hours or unemployment. And then the picture we had showed a lot of men. So he did a gender take of labor and what it was like in, in, in the lifestyle. So we thought that was fascinating. After public documents, there's private documents. When you go into the archives, you can find personal letters, pros and cons to personal letters too. The, the good news is it's behind the scenes. They're not intending a scholar to read that later and write a book about it. So you can trust that you're getting the background. Um, the bad part of it is it may not deliver what you want it to deliver because it's not a newspaper that has an obligation to you know, give you at least the lead and what's going on with that. Diaries are another fascinating private primary source. They're good because, like the letters, they're, they're private, but diaries also can be written with particular intent. Certainly, if you're writing a diary that you hope maybe one day you might want to publish or give to your kids or grandkids, you might write it for them. So you'd have to understand how that was, that was written. On the other hand, if you have somebody who's like, let's say, a politician, and publicly they're making all those speeches that you've just read, and then you get a hold of a private diary that they never intended you to read, and you can track the date of the diary entry against the date of the speech, then you can actually come up with a far more detailed analysis. What is a secondary source? Any, any former history majors learn secondary source? Uh, all the way in the back, yeah. All right, so a primary source is the document from history. The secondary source is what the historian writes from the primary sources. And the, uh, the, the, the classic, would, this is my, my department chair's book, so I, I'm honoring him, right? So he wrote a book on the Karaites. In order for him to write a book on the Karaites, he had to go study the primary sources of the Karaites. He distills all the primary sources and then um, writes up what's called a monograph. That's the style of writing he has, and that's called a secondary source. Typically, undergraduate, his, uh, undergraduate students read the secondary sources, and then in graduate school, you, you need to write your own secondary source so you learn how to do the primary sources to create that. Yeah. Now we're getting complicated. A newspaper can also be a, sec a, sec a secondary source. How could that be? All right, so if the newspaper article is writing about what somebody said, you know, earlier, then it can be a secondary source, absolutely. Um, and if it's from that period, it can be primary, but now it's a secondary source from a journalist's perspective. Isn't this fun? 
right? And by the way, the introduction of a scholarly book is always laying out the methodology of what sources they use and how they approach them. I just need to keep plowing forward and we'll, we'll get to more questions later. Um, is a textbook a primary source or a secondary source? It's a secondary source because it's compiled from all the research of the primary sources, except that's a trick question. Do you remember on the first day or sometime probably with all of you, I talked about the textbook from the University of Mississippi in 1840 about slavery. By the way, somebody two nights ago corrected me there from Mississippi and the University of Mississippi didn't open till for six years later. So now I'm gonna change it to 1847 or 1848 to make sure we have a University of Mississippi. Um, so if you're looking at a textbook from the 1850s, it was a secondary source in the 1850s because the students in college in the 1850s were reading it like we would read a textbook now. But if you're writing a history of textbooks, it's a primary source because it's telling you what historians in the 1850s wrote about when they wrote about their textbooks. Now my undergraduates are utterly confused, right, to see all of that. So what we're going to do now is uh, go through some of the highlights in the, in the book. So we're going to look um, now at the first historical document, which should say 1.09 in front of you. It should be the first page. I put it up here, but I'm, I was fairly confident this afternoon that nobody could read that, so I printed them out for everybody. And if you were in the um, Wednesday luncheon series when we did American Jewish history, this was part of the first lecture, which is, this is a 1762 document. Oh, I, I, have, to, I have a little joke first. I'm going to go all the way back to the title of the book for this. Uh, here it is. So I had the idea for the primary source reader, so I got the contract from the press, remember? And then we had to change it around. But I wanted a co-editor, because it's good to have a co-editor. And if you're doing a collection of historical sources, it's really good to get the executive director of the Archives of American Jewish History to be your co-editor, right? And that's Gary Zola at the Hebrew Union College and the American Jewish Archives. By the way, I'm proud to announce this will, this will be the last primary source document reader book ever published. Only because halfway through writing the third volume, our editor said everyone's going to the internet for primary sources now. Nobody's buying books on paper. But we said we already have a contract. So she said, okay, I'll honor the contract. And now you can brag that no publisher will ever do this again. <laughs> so, so it's an historical document itself. So it's hard to see at the bottom, you know, in the contrast, but Gary Zola is the, Rabbi Gary Zola, uh, is, is the director of the archives. And the rule is, it was my idea, so my name goes first, right? I never want to be the professor who has that kind of attitude. And by the third version of the book, Gary was doing most of the work. So I called him up. I said, Gary, you got to be ethical here. You, you've done more. It turns out you've done more work than I have because it's only documents. So I've already told the press to put your name first, right? And he was flattered and the rest of it. And then I said to him, but that's not really the reason. The really the reason is if you went through your whole life with the last name Zola, you have never been first on any list. <laughs> and I want to give you the chance. Reverse alphabetical order as the case may be. Okay. So what I did is I did underlining for you on the right-hand side so you could see you know, the highlight of this. We did get the italics. You see the italics at the beginning? I wrote the italic part so that we could give the reader a little bit of a context of what they were reading. But here, we find that there was a, a Jewish 
immigrant named Aaron Lopez, and he's going to Newport, Rhode Island in 1762. This is during the British colonial period, and he wants to be naturalized um, as a British subject. It wouldn't be a U.S. citizen yet. And it says in the underlined, and by a law made and passed in the year 1663, no person who does not profess the Christian religion can be admitted free of this colony. And then there's a little bracket there because there's some earlier amendments to a law. And then it said, this court therefore unanimously dismissed the said petition as absolutely inconsistent with the first principle upon which the colony was founded and inconsistent with a law now of the same in full force. So if we wanted to have the theory that colonial America was a place of religious freedom, and I made the argument that you could be whatever kind of Protestant denomination they wanted, here here is the historical example um, that we would look to. Our next document, it says family life and philanthropy at the top, 1.18. And this is Abigail Franks. And uh, her husband was Jacob Franks, who was a very successful colonial-era Jewish merchant. And in 1743, the story goes, she discovered that one of her children had intermarried. And one of the children had intermarried secretly. And, of course, because her kids are across the Atlantic in different places as the colonial families were split in that trade across the Atlantic, she didn't find out for six months. And now that she's found out, she is so upset that she is writing a letter to another child about their sibling who has just intermarried. And we'll go to the first uh, underlined, which is on the left-hand side. From the severe affliction I am under, on the contact of that unhappy girl, referring to the sister who had just intermarried, good God, what a shock it was when they acquainted me she had left the house and had been married six months. And now we'll go to the underlined on the right side of the page. My house has been my prison ever since. I had not heart enough to go near the street door. It's a pain to me to think of going again in town. I wish it was in my power to leave this part of the world. And then I did not underline. It says, I would come away in the first man of war that went to London. Um, So this is in the world of academic history called social history rather than political. Usually history is about what we cynically call white dead men who were, you know, presidents and politicians. And here we have a story of a woman in the colonial period dealing with family marriage patterns and religiosity. So that's, that is a subject that really only was integrated into, his, into the historiography in the late 60s and early 1970s, and now is pretty much a standard part. By the way, when we wrote the book, it was all historiography, meaning there's certain documents you got to put in because there's some standards. But then we have to make sure that the book itself is going to reflect the latest that academic historians know about um, each and every subject, mostly so they would adopt the book. Um, I'm happy that ultimately we got Tahasia Dinner and Jonathan Sarna to both put quotes on the back of the book. That meant everybody in the field will be happy with it. Uh, yeah. Uh, where did I find that document? Um, so the document, and, and we sourced it all, but most of it came from the American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati, some from the American Jewish Historical Society Archives in Manhattan. And then they would have either had them donated 
because when, when, when somebody wants to donate it, or it could be at a different library, uh, and they would get uh, maybe a facsimile of it, uh, and, then, and then other times they, they, they come in, you know, in other, other kind of ways. But at the end of every source, we will say where, where we got it from. So if you look at the one that, that I wrote, Maryland Constitution, on the top, that should be your next page. And it's very small, but you say it says, as printed in, and then that's the journal. J-A-W is the name of a journal, and the journal got it from the government printing office, and then you can see in 1909 where, where all that came from. So here's the notion of what was it like to be an American Jew in colonial Maryland. Well, the first underlying statement, this is the constitution of the, of the um, this is the state of Maryland, because this now is after 1776. All persons professing the Christian religion are equally entitled to protection in their religious liberty. That's beautiful, huh? I mean, and it's so expansive, too. Because you could be any Protestant or even a Catholic, and you'd be protected. Uh, this is before the Constitution. Correct. This is in the, under the Articles of Confederation. It's before the Constitution. Then at the bottom, the legislature may, in their discretion, lay a general and equal tax for the support of the Christian religion. And we will see, of course, when the Constitution comes in about 10 years later, there is not going to be any tax for any religion. In fact, we could take this Maryland constitutional line and hand it to the Philadelphia framers at the Constitutional Convention of 1787 because they're going to look at this and say, no more of this, right? But we need to know that even in the United States of America, this existed on the right-hand side, that no other test or qualification ought to be required meaning other than that you're a Christian, because at the bottom it says, and a declaration of a belief in the Christian religion. They were quite blatant about it. And then at the last line, and shall also subscribe a declaration of his belief in the Christian religion. So we edited that because we're only looking for the religion parts. So you see some dot, dot, dots. But you'll notice all out throughout the document, they have various ones. We'll do one quick question, then keep going. I, I have to just interrupt you because the past Christian did not the Constitution did not prevent states from establishing the religion or from prohibiting free expression. It only prohibited the U.S. government. The federal government. So until, until the 14th right. Amendment, states could do this. Could still do it. Thank you. That's a great thank you. Appreciate that from the law. Yeah. Why wouldn't you go to the original source instead of citing that? Secondary Why not go to the original source instead of the secondary? Um, it's usually logistics. Which, which means we'd have to go to Maryland, we'd have to go probably into the state archives, we'd have to get special permission to have them pull out the original, or we'd have to get a facsimile copy anyway, um, and we trust the source. So, yeah. If you were a Jew in Maryland, are you a stateless person? If you're a Jew in Maryland, are you stateless? Um, uh, you're, living, you're living there without the rights of citizenship, is, is what it was. Right. And, I, you know, I, I don't know that they're actually going to evict you for it. They're just not going to protect your rights if there's a problem. That's that's a good question. That would be a good social history to figure out where they went after they got denied their their citizenship rights. Um, the next page under religion, and it's a little smudged because I was having trouble getting the book flat, but you get the basic idea. This is the famous or infamous Trafa banquet. If you haven't heard of this, um, the original. This will not be about Yom Friday night. If you're not familiar with the story, 
In order to uh, honor and celebrate the first rabbinic class from the Hebrew Union College of the Reform Movement, they had a big luncheon on the 11th of July in 1883, and they all sat down, and I just underlined the obvious unkosher items, the half-shell clams, soft-shell crabs, and the shrimp salad, um, and of course the meat and the pigeon, you know, in every which way, this was an unkosher meal. Um, yeah. I lived in Cincinnati for many years, and uh, spoke to older people, and they say that they just got up as a body and left, and that the hotel is still there in downtown Cincinnati. Yeah, so, so here's a Cincinnati resident describing her experience. And, and this is a debate among scholars of American Jewish history, which is how on earth would a rabbi luncheon have the treif? And, uh, and, and one argument is, well, they were making a statement. And if they reform and they're going to embrace America and the Enlightenment and civil equality in a Christian-dominated society... And they're not kosher. And if you're not kosher, because that's what your denomination believes, don't pretend. And this is not pretending. This is definitely unkosher. So the theory is half the people walked out and that formed the conservative movement. That's sort of the apocryphal story because they thought that they went too far. Um, there's another argument that it was um, a catering error. So, lack of communication, not sure. And then the third argument, which is the one that most in the, the historiography argues now, is it was actually none, not, none of the above. It was like if you're living in Cincinnati and you're a classical reformed Jew and it's the 1880s, you want to put on a fancy lunch, you just do that. And, and, and they weren't trying to make a statement and they, and they weren't trying to, to alienate anyone that, oh my gosh, there's a problem with that, you know, and then they learned that there was a problem with it and then that, you know, sort of created the third. Uh, what's that? Who named it the Trefa Banquet? I don't know exactly who named that. It probably came out from the rabbis who stormed out of the room. Um, I will share with you um, sort of a, a fun thing. That is that in San Francisco, there is a group of Jewish restaurateurs, and it's sort of an elite group, and it's a private group. Uh, and if you're Jewish and you're in the restaurant industry or you're a chef, you get invited to join. And they get together a few times a year, and they do different events together and because they appreciate food, and they appreciate that they're all Jewish. And um, they decided that they were going to have, in San Francisco, of course, Trefa Banquet 2, the sequel. <laughs> And everybody was charged with producing the most trafe item they could. And uh, my colleague, um, Professor Rachel Gross, who is a scholar of Jewish food and holds the uh, Goldman Chair in American Jewish Studies at San Francisco State, she's about three years, four years now out of Princeton, um, she was invited to give scholarship on the trafe banquet and all of the, the politics of Jewish consumption, which is, which is her field. Turns out two of San Francisco rabbis showed up and they decided to give a bracha for the food. And then it turns out there were some media people there and they wrote it up and then it caused a national scandal that the rabbis would do that and that San Francisco would have the Trefa Banquet too and it even brought Jonathan Sarna, the leader of our field, to actually publish an op-ed uh, with his opinion on the Trefa Banquet too related to Trefa Banquet 1. So not now, but when we're done, you can go to the internet and write Trefa Banquet San Francisco and you can read all of the various uh, articles on that. At the very bottom of the page is the introduction to the Pittsburgh Platform of 1885. I've spoken about that in several lectures, so if you go to the next page to see the underline, 
The key part of this is a line that says, we consider ourselves no longer a nation, but a religious community, and therefore expect neither a return to Palestine, and then it gives you more other things. That was the most important sentence that established reform rabbis of the late 19th century as anti-Zionists. And we, we edited the document because it's really long, but we got in a lot of the different pieces if you wanted to sort of map out where classical reform Judaism was in that period through the words of the rabbis themselves. You'll be able to see it. If you go to the next page, now we'll get into the anti-Semitism. This is 1920. This is a Dearborn Independent, a newspaper. And oh, now, now Alita, we'll get to your point about how the newspapers don't always... Well, the Dearborn Independent was owned by Henry Ford, and Ford was an anti-Semite. And he used his newspaper as a platform for his anti-Semitism. And the Dearborn Independent, for years and years, was propagating the protocols of Zion, the myth that Jews were in cahoots to control the world through banks and the media. So we put in one, and this is early, this is 1920. We, we liked it because it was earlier than most people were looking at domestic anti-Semitism. And here we see one of the leading Jewish political figures of the generation, Bernard Baruch, described as the Jewish high governor of the United States um, in, in war affairs. And then the last words on that page, going to the next page, the Jews made much of Woodrow Wilson, far too much for his own good. Now there's a conspiracy of the Jews controlling the government, right? They formed a solid ring around him. There was a time when he communicated to the country through no one but a Jew. David Lawrence, as his unofficial mouthpiece, had the run of the White House offices with frequent access to the president, and for a time he was the high cockalorum of national newspaperdom. That's a new word for me, but I'm sure it's not good for the Jews. And then on the right side, Mr. Baruch is but one illustration of the clustering of Jewry about the war machinery of the United States. Uh, so that's, that's chilling. And uh, on the next page, I've lectured on this in a bunch of the Zionism lectures. This is the American Council for Judaism. Their statement of principles issued in the middle of World War II at the time that we knew enough about what was going on in Nazi Germany and Nazi-controlled Europe. And these mostly reformed rabbis, mostly from San Francisco, say, but in the light of our universalist interpretation of Jewish history and destiny, and also because of our concern for the welfare and status of the Jewish people living in other parts of the world, we are unable to subscribe to or support the political emphasis now paramount in the Zionist program. We cannot but believe that Jewish nationalism tends to confuse our fellow men about our place and function in society and also diverts our own attention from our historic role to live as a religious community wherever we may dwell. And uh, that was... Uh, a version of this was published um, as a full-page ad in the New York Times. And with that, they were thoroughly renounced, even by their own movement, understanding that uh, the world had changed far too much for that kind of thinking. Um, and is that the last one? I think that's the last one. Okay, so that was, I know, a quick run through 
um, because I want to get to the to the songs and stuff before we run out of time. Um, I believe most most have seen this stained glass window. If you haven't, it's Cherith Israel in San Francisco. It's Moses delivering the Ten Commandments at Sinai, except it's not Sinai. It's Yosemite with El, with El Capitan and Half Dome at the very top. Because if you're a California Jew, you know where God gave Torah. Um, that's Pittsburgh platform. We've covered all those. Um, we're not going to do the Bintel brief because we've already done it. So now we're going to get into our first song. All right. So uh, this is a song written by Milton Berle. Uh, and uh, Milton Berle um, wrote about Sam the tailor, a classic Jewish figure, Sam the tailor. And uh, the problem, well, the good news about Sam the tailor was he was a very good tailor. The bad news about Sam the tailor is on one particular job, he didn't do very well on the pants. He did fine on the, on the sport coat, but the pants and the suit, well, they ended up too long. The worst part about the mistake that Sam the tailor made on the pants was that it was made into a song, and the song is um, part Yiddish, part English, and I actually didn't copy the song lyrics. They're up here if you can read them. Actually, I think this one we've got mostly in, mostly in, I think this is the English version. So let's listen to the original version of, of Sam, the man who made the pants too long. Yay, the coat and vest, fit the best. You made the lining nice and strong, but Sam, you made the pants too long. I mean, look at these things, look at them. You made the peak lapel look so swell. So am I to say you're wrong, but Sam, you made the pants too long. a belt and they got suspenders so what can they lose but what good are belts and what good suspenders when the pants are hanging over the shoes you feel a winter breeze up and down the knees the belt is where the tie belongs cause Sam 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 you made the pants That's a fun song. That's a, that's a fun song. And if you're a student of uh, American Jewish pop culture, you'll like the song. It's a way of showing popular representation of traditional Jewish, you know, stereotypes and as that were. And that would have been fine and fun, except it, the stakes went much higher when Barbara Streisand decided to do a cover of the tune. Yes, I'm walking, but I'm walking without feet. I'm not finding fault at all with what's too big and what's too small. But Sam, Sam, 
too long You made the people look bad That's so swell Who am I to say you're wrong But Sam You made the pants too long They got the belt And they got suspenders So what can they lose But what good are belts And what good suspenders When the pants are hanging over the shoes You feel the winter breeze Up and down the knees The belt is where the tie belongs Cause Sam, Sam, Sam awful it's great but when Barbara Streisand records it and puts it out there a gazillion people are going to listen to it and she closes it by addressing Sam directly you know what I mean Sam how would you feel if you were Sam if you made a mistake on a pair of pants and Barbara Streisand ruined your career well I'll tell you, Sam wrote back. If introducer to Alaine, I was a businessman. Suits to all the dirty matches like a tailor can. This ain't a gemacht, a song premiere, and that's the truth. That was my flap, vermacht mein Schab, hat sinnbeneer kaputt. Bin Sam, the man that made the pants too long. Hier sieht dem Geibel so gemacht im Song. Der Kopf, die West, ist fein gepresst, der Mantel mit dem Drang. Er hat mir verjuckt, wenn er hat gesucht. Sam, you made the pants too long. Get spoiled near mine in business, made them song. Instead, it's short, it's better if it's long. When it's bulky, my the pants to fit. A song you should have moved down it. I'm Sam, the man who made the pants too long. And the drama, fortunately, comes to a merciful end. <laughs> well, I'm going to skip through some of these because we've covered them already. And now I have a pop quiz for you. What is the most recorded popular song in U.S. history? White Christmas, well done. Written by Irving Berlin. Uh, yes, a, immig a Jewish immigrant from Eastern Europe ends up writing not only the most popular song ever, ever recorded in U.S. history, but he actually defines, it's the defining Christmas song, which is, you could think, ironic, but it's also sort of a great reflection of, 
of the acculturation process for American Jews. The thing about Irving Berlin, though, first of all, he couldn't read music, which was astounding. He had an assistant who would do that. He would just tap it out at the piano. And uh, he was a bit of a recluse. Uh, he was actually given later in his life lots of national awards and typically didn't show up for them because he, he didn't like the attention. There is one example of him singing one of his own songs and this happens to be a World War I medley. So to hear Irving Berlin uh, actually performing one of his songs, uh, here he is. I've been a soldier quite a while and I would like to state the life is simply wonderful. The army food is great. I sleep with 97 others in a wooden hut. I love them all. They all love me. It's very lovely, but... Oh, how I hate to get up in the morning. Oh, how I'd love to remain in bed. For the hardest blow of all is to hear the bugler call. You've got to get up, you've got to get up, you've got to get up this morning. Someday I'm going to murder the bugler. Someday they're going to find him dead. I'll amputate his reveille and step upon it heavily and spend the rest of my life in bed. Oh, how I hate to get up in the morning. Oh, how I love to remain in bed. For the hardest blow of all is to hear the bugler call. You gotta get up, you gotta get up, you gotta get up this morning. Someday I'm going to murder the bugler. Pup, the guy who wakes the bugler up and the rest of my life in bed. I play that song. That's the first song my students get at the beginning of every semester, especially if it's an early morning class. Uh, so now I'm going to. I'm going to switch gears, and I'm going to move you to the end of my modern Jewish history and American Jewish history course. And what I have is a series of music videos. And uh, you have a question for each music video. And the question is, is this Jewish? Or is it American Jewish? Or what would it be that would or would not be American Jewish? And you know me long enough to know that I believe that the definition of Jewishness is rooted in the American experience and that Jews borrow from American culture and internalize it as Jews and then end up on the other end thinking that Jewish things are Jewish when in fact they're, they're coming from the U.S. historical experience. So, for, so here will be our first uh, Shabbat shalom. 
That is Simon and Garfunkel's A Boxer by Israeli artists translated into Hebrew. All right? What makes it Jewish? It's Israeli. It's in Hebrew. Simon and Garfunkel are Jewish. Right? I mean, so what scholars, and, and this, is the, this is actually the big historiographic question now for American Jewish historians, is what's Jewish and who's Jewish? Uh, Lila Corwin Berman, who's at Temple University, just published a, a brilliant article in the Journal for All Jewish Studies Historians, where she confesses that there was somebody with a Jewish name and a Jewish organization doing Jewish things that she did an article on and published it only to discover he wasn't Jewish. And then there was somebody who wasn't Jewish, who was doing Jewish things in her mind, whatever that means. And she's proposing that maybe Jewish isn't those who identify and join a synagogue. Maybe Jewish goes deeper, because there's a lot of secular Jews who say they're not Jewish, but they're all Jewish by their lives. And so she wants the scholars to move our source material away from the ones we're studying who are the self-pronounced Jews in order to see it. So. If a Jew eats a bagel or a non-Jew eats a bagel, right. So now we're getting into the politics of consumption. We'll bring Professor Gross in. So, all right, here's our next one. We roll ye crawling in bad. Is that, is that Jewish? Or how, you know, so it's a primary source, and as you read the primary source, how would you make an argument that's Jewish or that's not Jewish? Yeah. It's very American. It's very American. It's the cup song. This is a secular song. Yeah. It sounds like the wagons moving west or, or campfires. It sounds like a campfire song. It sounds like the hoofbeats of the horses on the wagon. Yeah, so it's a playback to that, to 19th century. Yeah. All right, so this is a high-level music video, and they've got the whole thing worked out, well edited. You know, yeah. And it's very acrobatic. Yeah, acrobatic. 
and show. Yeah, so welcome to Jewish America, right? Uh, but yeah. So this is the Maccabees. There, um, there's actually several versions of them now from Yeshiva University, and um, there there are students, you know, who perform on campus. All the alumni go around the country in groups, and maybe you've seen them perform. And as Orthodox. Jewish men taking traditional Jewish text, mixing it with contemporary secular music in order to create a piece like that that ostensibly would draw folks into Judaism by using Americanist ideas to doing it. So you could do a whole thing. Before I show you the next one, um, I'm actually going to talk to you about it before because I think it'll be more useful to give you the, 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 the prep. It's uh, Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song. Now, many of you are familiar. Some of you may not. But I want to tell you that, that um, it's, a, it's a, a very important song in the historiography. So here's what Adam Sandler, who was on Saturday Night Live, did, was he made a list of all the Jewish people in Hollywood who maybe you didn't think were Jewish, um, around what's called the December Dilemma. What if you're Jewish in December, you're not celebrating Christmas, you have Hanukkah, it's uncomfortable for you in a world filled with Christmas, and so he's trying to save Hanukkah for the Jews by assuring the Jews that they have a lot of other Jews who celebrate Hanukkah instead of Christmas, and he puts it into a song. Um, and uh, when, he, when it broke on Saturday Night Live, and there's now three or four versions of it um, with different people that are named, uh, it spread like wildfire among American Jews. And uh, Eric Goldstein, actually, who's the scholar I've been talking about with um, the book on Jews and race and whiteness, he actually wrote an article on, on this particular song because that was a political statement. What Adam Sandler was saying to generations of Jewish celebrities who changed their names and went undercover being Jewish, he said, uh, shame on you. If you're Jewish, you should be proud. I'm Jewish. I'm proud. I'm going to write a Hanukkah song and sing it on Saturday Night Live of all venues, and I'm going to out every single one of you. And if you thought that you were going to hide your Jewishness, and then each song after that outed more and more, and then his statement to, to Jews in, in, in mass media is you should be proud of who you are. So with that, here is the original version um, of, of the Hanukkah song. Instead of one day of presents, we get eight crazy nights. <laughs> but when you feel like the only kid in town without a Christmas tree, here's a list of people who are Jewish, just like you. Yeah. 
And that was that was a clip you could listen to the whole thing uh, later on. Um, I said that was uh, um, so that I was going to say that was a clip, and you can go to YouTube and see many versions of it. And I think it probably when did it come out? Probably about twenty years ago. Has it been that long? Yeah, something like that. Um, and now, of course, the best example of American Jewish history, American Jewish music, to understand how deep and important the Jewish experience is in America. So we spent almost the last month on a survey of American Jewish history with the foundational question of whether or not this has been an exceptional experience for Jews. I will close tonight by saying that is your best historical evidence for American Jewish exceptionalism. Thank you very much. We're officially out of time. I can take questions if they want them or... Okay. Yes, Alita. I had a, um, a few items that I was wondering if you could just quickly shotgun whether you would consider them primary or secondary sources, um, like school pamphlets, pamphlets that are written by Pamphlets written by schools are primary sources if you are studying the era in which it was printed. It's a secondary source if it's contemporary to you now. Okay, maps? Maps are primary sources if we're looking at historic maps to see in the way in which cartography influenced things. Um, and it would be a secondary source if you were looking at, at that moment. But the moment you wrote about it, it would become a primary source 20 years later. No, recipes. Recipes, a great question. Professor Gross does this. They're definitely primary sources. And if you're friends with her on Facebook, she will be putting, she put a recipe from 1938 up yesterday and talked about the way in which um, uh, Jewish cooking patterns and cookbooks and Jewish cookbooks change over time and how that reflects on, on themes in, in American Jewish history. Uh, artwork is also a primary source because you can tell if you're in the art world, certain things go in and out of vogue and art changes. And if you know your art well enough, you can look at it and predict about when it was written. Poetry? Poetry is the same as any other written source. Absolutely. It'd be primary source. Novels? Uh, novels also primary sources. And then the, the challenge on novels, can historical novels be used as primary sources in U.S. history courses? <laughs> Babbitt, for example, was Sinclair. the big one. Sinclair Lewis, yeah. So um, I, I, I believe one can use fiction as an as a primary historical document. So we have our students read. Movies. 
read those. Uh, movies in the same way, because if you look at, well, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, right, is a primary source, but he did not mean it that way at the time, <laughs> you know, yeah. Laws and legal documents as well. As long as they're evolving over time, they're historical documents because there's a moment they were one way, a moment they changed to something else, and the historian wants to understand how and why that happened. So obviously birth certificates, marriage records, things like that. Right, all, all vital, vital records would be. And what vital records contained and what information they asked for and how it was that they were listed. Jews were listed as Hebrews, I've learned. Jews were listed as Yiddish speakers. Um, and, and even by, by tracking the, the nomenclature, you can learn things. Uh, songs? And song, yeah, so we just did songs. Those are primary. Primary sources. And then um, I'm thinking radio programs, like we hear radio today, interviews, things like that. Right, radio interviews, as long as, what you'd have to do in your footnote is you'd have to say when the radio show was, was recorded, because that would be important for the person listening to it. If somebody said something, well, on my Black Power book, if somebody said something about Black Power in 1968, you wouldn't be so impressed. But if they said it in 1914, you'd be really impressed. So, and that's what happened. Good questions. Uh, yeah. Are there any particular challenges in searching for and using primary sources in the United States, say, relative to Europe? Are there challenges to primary sources in the in the U.S. relative to Europe? Um, it, it it is absolutely a decentralized system, which means that you have to find out what sources you need for your project, where in the country or where in the world they are, and how that place treated them. So I will tell you the Mormons are the best at preserving primary sources because they have a religious impetus for it. And in fact, when the Polish, um, when, when, when Jewish, um, research, Jewish historians were trying to get information that survived Polish synagogues after the Shoah, they went to the Mormons for two reasons. One, they're really good at what they do, and two, they'd be permitted in. And Jewish dollars funded the Mormons to go and capture all the surviving records from Eastern European Polish synagogues um, in, in, order, in order to do that. Now, the big challenge for archives are digitizing, because once you digitize, you can put it up on the internet, and then you don't need to go to the archive to see it. It's an expensive, laborious process, and sadly, philanthropists don't always get excited about paying for digitizing historical documents. Yeah. So the Gospels are not primary source. The Gospels? Yes. I mean, written at least 100 years, the first one, after the, Jesus. Yeah, the Gospels would be, would be primary source. Because they came from, well, if you're studying that era and you'd want to read the Gospels written in that era, you would have that, those words reflecting the moment. They would be orally passed down because none of the, um, the writers were living at the Right, so is anything that's from the period you're studying is primary by definition of the fact that it was created in that moment and you'd want to discover it and read about it and assess it. Yeah, and it's secondary if once you've done all that, you write up a, a book about it and then, and then it's secondary. How has the Freedom of Information Act improved primary source yeah, what's, material? Yeah, great question. What's the impact of the Freedom of Information Act? It's been fantastic as, as it's passed, I think, in 74. And now scholars can fill out a form and get mostly government documents that would otherwise have been secret. And um, there's a long wait period involved, you know, because they've got to go through all of the documents. Um, the, the Berkeley radicals of the 60s loved the Freedom of Information Act because they could all get their FBI files and they could see what the FBI said about them. So in putting together this book, how do you decide what to include and what to not include? And I assume there are documents out there you don't even know about. 
and then therefore you're not including them. But how do we make editorial decisions? Right. So, so there's basically three categories to that answer. Number one is there are foundational documents in American Jewish history that. So the the idea here is every every university level course in the field wants to buy the book. We want to sell it. So we've got to include George Washington's letter to the church. Right. That's going in there. Grant's uh, order number eleven is going in there, uh, and and there's going to be major themes. The next thing we want, and this is where Gary Zola was fantastic because he ran the archives, he had an entire staff. He's like, what do I know that's there that most people don't know that's there that when you read the historiography now needs to bubble up for people to have access to because earlier generations of scholars didn't know it was there or didn't care about that sort of stuff. And we're trying to anticipate. Um, so if you look at the very last chapter, it's contemporary American Jewish life. So we did internet stuff. We did J-Date. We did, um, we did gay lesbian synagogue in San Francisco in the Sidur that they wrote, right? We're, we're trying, to, trying to push as much as we can to the edge of the contemporary period. Um, and, and we were happy then, knowing, of course, that, that new documents will be discovered that we didn't see. But then we get feedback from, and the way the book goes, they send, they send the, the, the manuscript out. And then our, our professors come back and say, why isn't this there and why isn't that there? And we realized if we would put in a, a, one article or one document, that professor would buy the book because they want to teach that document. It's in. <laughs> you know? uh, so, so nowadays it's going to be all online. So it's like Wikipedia. It's dynamic. You can add, it's dynamic, right. Right, and you can find it there. Your students can download it for free. You can manipulate it. You can link it. You know, there's a lot more you can do with that technology. Uh, ostensibly, we're going to link this to a website. Um, you know, Gary, if you listen to this, we've got to get on that. So uh, last question. Yeah. We wanted to do a history of Professor Dollinger. All of your podcasts from this month-long scholar program would be primary sources. However, otherwise, if we were just looking at what you had to say about what you've been lecturing about, you would be a secondary. Excellent. So the podcasts now are, let's start with the easy answer, which is our secondary sources, because I was hired by CSP to come down and share with you all of the research that my colleagues and myself have done in the primary sources, distill it in a 45-minute arc, and have you take notes and or not, and have your sheet in front of you and walk out, I've learned something new. And let's just say 20 years from now, the next generation of grad students trying to take me down right, are going to try to explain how everything I taught you is so wrong because I didn't see the historical document that Ari is aware of that hasn't told me about yet. And then they will go and read, listen to all these podcasts and then they will cite them in the footnotes. On January 18th, 2019, in Orange County, California, Professor Dollinger um, said the following amazing statement, quote, you know, and then, of course, it's going to be a terrible, misquoted, out-of-context <laughs> statement. But then they're going to go after it. So thank you. Then it you. becomes yeah. primary. Then it becomes primary. That's right. Thank you, thank you all.